Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, I want to welcome you to the uh, end of our current series, Porn Again. We have been through some dark material. I have to to honor you with that, Uh, particularly last week. As we examine the story of David and Bathsheba, of how one of the most revered Christian leaders, and actually all of biblical history, hit rock bottom in his private life. All because of his decision, one night, to just indulge, just a little bit, the private eyeful. But tonight we actually end our series on an upswing, because in God's redemptive story, the pain and destruction that's wrought by porneia, or sexual sin is not the final word. We thank God for that. There is actually hope, and there is healing. If we're to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of all men, all women, is actually the good news that the Bible says it is, then we understand that God is in the business of restoration and renewal. That is, no matter how you've blown it, or how dark your past is, or how much you're actually currently struggling, there is hope. But like David, you may have to actually hit rock bottom, come face to face with the painful consequences of of tolerating lust and sensuality in your life before you're able to actually take the first few tentative steps towards freedom. Now, just as a way of linking our teaching tonight to last week, I'll ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, those of you who, uh, I I just know there are a number of of, uh, people here this week who were not with us last week. So I want to connect this and seam this together for you. So I'll ask the patience of those of you who already have been through the story of David and Bathsheba. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, we bring the curtain up on one of the most revered of all biblical characters, King David, who we know Scripture famously says was a man after God's own what? Heart. Yeah, we spent almost a year actually um, looking at the life of David uh, about a year ago as a template model for our own in the Christian life. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he is about 50 years old, and he actually has become king of Israel. And David was really unprecedented. I mean, when you think of the Middle East and the conflict there nowadays, there is no monarch or ruler or president or dictator or anyone in the Middle East who ever ruled and enjoyed the amount of political and military prestige that David did. He, um, when he took the kingdom of Israel, took over the throne from Saul, he actually, as if you were here last week, we, we went through a number of David's battles where he slew the Ammonites, he put down the Philistines, and actually foreign kings brought him gold and silver as a preemptive measure so that, they, so that he wouldn't take them on. So Because the Lord was with him wherever he went. And so at this point, when chapter 11 opens, David has established his throne, his kingdom there in Jerusalem, And verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David's military campaigns had been so successful, he'd enjoyed such complete and total victory over his enemies because of the anointing that God gave him, that it actually wasn't necessary for him to even personally go off to war. He had rightly selected his most capable general, Joab, to do a mop-up operation. All this so that David, at 50 years old, height of his powers, height of his influence, could finally ah, relax. (laughs) He deserves it. And immediately, we're struck with the foundational principle of sexual temptation that oftentimes our moments of greatest vulnerability come in the wake 
of our most stirring victories. Any pastor or ministry leader knows this, and it wouldn't really seem to make sense, right? You'd think after doing a brilliant job effectively leading and serving God's people that, you know, peace and impenetrability would follow. Not so, David teaches us. He relaxes. He lets down his guard, puts his weapons away in more ways than one. Just as the physical rigors and discipline he knew as a soldier were relaxed, David's relaxation also extended, apparently, to his moral life. He let down his guard, literally and spiritually, and opens the door to sexual temptation. It's, it's not a coincidence that David lets down his guard in the wake of such outstanding spiritual victory. That's actually a common experience for leaders who are used by God to lead other people. I told you candidly last week, I know my biggest vulnerability to sexual temptation comes immediately after preaching or teaching at Liquid on Sunday nights. Never fails, especially when I talk about porn or lust or sexual issues. I won't recount them all for you. You'd have to listen to them online. But I told you I get hit like a freight train on the way home. It's like clockwork. It happened a couple weeks ago after we started this series. My downfall is late night channel surfing. We don't have any like porn channels or something at home. But late at night is when I'm, especially after having spent time, I spent time with people praying for them, working with them, and you just feel like, wow, God's really moving here. But I come home and it never fails, never fails. You're cruising through the late night channels and stuff comes on like girls gone wild infomercials. You ever seen this? They loop it on the upper channels. No, we've never seen this, Tim, just you. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, or, or I'm flipping through. Again, this is legalized sensuality. I'm not talking about porn. I'm talking about, like, you know, Howard Stern on television. Except that it's just funny, you know, lesbian butt bongo they were playing. It's funny. Apparently, David had some late-night viewing habits as well. In verse 2, it says, One evening, David got up from his bed. It was late at night. And walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And we stopped right there because at that moment we realized every Christian leader, every purported follower of Christ Jesus has a choice to make. Do I linger? Go in for a second look? Quick glance? I I saw, I think, something there. Something exotic. Something alluring. I want you to imagine King David striding out onto his rooftop late at night. It's late. He'd already been in bed. The city's asleep. And as he strides out onto this veranda for a breath of the cool night air to purvey his peaceful city, the one which he brought peace to, the Lord brought peace to these people through him, as he surfs his eye across the rooftops and the windows, something catches his attention. Whoa. And he keeps going. Whoa, was that? Go back one. Oh, she is... Beautiful. A a young woman in a pool of water, sudsing up apparently with no modesty whatsoever. I can only imagine the evening shadows making her more enticing. And as King David looks upon her, sets his eyes on her sensuous form in the moonlight, he's faced with a choice that we're all faced with. Do I drink her in? Do I just enjoy the image of her form? Just kind of, you know... Take a private eyeful, or, or, or do I move on? <laughs> Facing a crossroads, a decision to make that no one would know, no one would know but him and the Lord, David chooses not just to look, but to linger. To drink in the image of this young woman, just enjoy her, the mental picture of her bathing, washing over his eyes and undoubtedly popping and alighting the pleasure centers in his brain. And this, the moment of truth, of exposure of a Christian leader's character. That what we do in private, when no one's looking, especially when it comes to sexual temptation. 
Because in our Corinthian culture, we all encounter erotic imagery and sensual images all around us 24-7. It's not relegated to late-night TV or rooftop voyeurism. We've got computer screens, round-the-clock access to websites, chat rooms, and portals, the porntopia that promise a little pleasure for the soul, just relaxing and repose. And it's what we do in that moment. When our eyes first sniff out that image and our mind gives us a proposition, hey, just, just check, check that thing out. Inquire into this. Our minds are curious organs. Find out a little bit more. The words of verse 3 tell us all we need to know about David because he sent someone, text says. Just find out about it. Just inquire. Instead of bouncing his eyes and going back to bed, his, looks beca- his look becomes a stare. And somewhere along the line, his stare becomes a heated, libidinous leer. And in that moment of decision, when he drinks her in and decides to just find out more, King David, who'd been a man after God's own heart, becomes just another leering, dirty old man. True to his word, God offered David a a way out. We looked at verse 3 last week, what happened when David asked one of his trusted servants to find out more. This faithful page, look at this in verse 3, the sensitive steward actually summons the courage to artfully remind the king that actually this woman you're looking at is not your wife. The man said, isn't this um, Bathsheba, uh, the daughter of Eliam and the wife? of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, um, no offense, my king, my liege, my my all-powerful sovereign, but isn't the woman you're inquiring about someone else's daughter? Someone else's wife? Heroically, the servant tries to humanize this woman for David. He's like, this isn't just a, a body. This isn't just some flesh to consume. This is a woman, one of God's most precious creations, a daughter of God, and she has a name. Bathsheba, she's someone, some father's daughter. She's another man's wife, Uriah the Hittite. A gift from God to him, not to you. What are you doing? And a lifeline is offered to David by God through the words of the servant. Think twice, take pause, don't do it. Most tragically, David actually declines the way out and he blows way past the exit ramp. Brilliant at leadership of God's people in battle, he fails self-leadership when it counts most. Verse 4 says simply, then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. Lingering in the place of temptation, just a little private eyeful, inevitably leads down the road to fully partaking in something we never, ever dreamed we'd be caught up in. So after the private tour of the site, we actually give a credit card number. Curiosity morphs into indulgence. Surfing the web once in a while becomes regular visitation. And like David, you decline the way out that's offered by God and choose instead, as David did, the anonymous orgasm with the stranger. We don't stand up under temptation. We cave in. A complete collapse. Total failure. And this is the power of indulging in private lust, Scripture tells us. In porn and fantasy. Just that little pick opens our eyes to another's body, which is not ours for the taking. And most significantly, it blinds our eyes to the one who is alongside us, offering us a way out. This didn't sneak up on David, right? We learned that last week. It was the result of his tolerance of a lifetime of legal sensualities. We turn to 2 Samuel 5, actually, which recorded a little detail that's very telling. It says, after David left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. And, And this was mentioned almost as an aside in this chapter, which details David's original assumption of power in Jerusalem. But what makes it significant is that early on, David established a pattern of very slight cultural compromise that set the groundwork for his future fall. 
That is, in taking additional wives, see, the, the gathering of a harem, it was specifically forbidden by God in Deuteronomy 17, although it was widely accepted as part of Middle Eastern culture. No problem with it. Every king, every ruler in the Middle East did it. But Yahweh, the God of the Bible, establishes a different standard for Hebrew kings. They were not to be polygamists. But early on, David chooses, actually, just kind of ignore that little calling to holiness, to be different. And instead chose the route of legal sensuality. It wasn't considered adultery in the culture of the day. You wouldn't be looked on like, whoa, is he like Mormon? It was sin in God's eyes. And David's indulgence in this practice undoubtedly began the gradual process of desensitization to God's holy call in his life. He embraced the socially permitted patterns of sensuality, the legal ones. And it's those indulgences, folks, that eventually take us down. I asked what those legal sensualities were for you. You know, the ones, the little, the little moments in our culture that our culture suggests are completely acceptable and expected that you just kind of let into your life. Maybe it's late night channel surfing, maybe it's the PG-13 sex comedies like American Pie, or harmless stuff that's on TBS, have sex with everybody, friends included. TBS, very funny. Harmless. No one's going to look down at you for that. It compromises nonetheless. Steve Farrer said, the thing about quicksand is that the more energy you expend trying to get out, the more the quicksand is going to swallow you up. Sexual sin, pornography, is quicksand. And when someone finds themselves caught up in it like David does in 2 Samuel 11, their first inclination actually isn't to come clean and say, wow, I think I really am compromising. It's actually to cover it up. Nobody will find out about this. It's inconsequential. Dismiss it. Keep it secret. Damage control. And David's subsequent episode with Uriah is a perfect illustration of this. With Bathsheba pregnant, David's got a little problem. (laughs) The illicit product of his sin is not immediately visible to the naked eye, but it will be in nine months unless he does something about it. And so he goes to cover his tracks, summoning Uriah in verses 6 through 9 from the battlefield. And it's interesting, the king calls Bathsheba's husband home and engages in a little cat and mouse. Look at verse 7. When Uriah came to him... David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink, wink. (laughs) Right? And we learned that was actually Hebrew code. Wash your feet was not just like, hey, Paul, go wash your feet. Come on, dirty guy, put some sandals on. No, this was go home and wash your feet. In other words, go clean up and go visit your wife. She's been a lonely woman and you have been at war and you must be hungry for a little reward. Wash your feet, prepare for bed, shave your face, go enjoy the wife of your youth. You get the idea. David wants to get himself off the hook. And he figures if he can get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, once she starts showing, people will assume, hey, this is a normal product of of, of marriage. Oh, I see. Hey, Uriah, you got some clean feet. (laughs) And so David gets off the hook. He'd eliminate suspicion, or so he hoped. Uriah's response in verse 11 is revealing. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open field. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And this contrast that is being set up here beyond this all-powerful monarch who compromises in private and this lowly little peon foot soldier whose heart is so sensitized to his calling as a servant of God that before considering gratifying his own physical appetites, which he was rightfully entitled to with his wife, 
he first takes into consideration every other relationship around him. First thing that comes to mind, who? God. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the Lord's presence. He calls that to mind. Secondly, he thinks of who? His fellow brothers. The Lord's men camped in the open fields. I've got a responsibility to them. Dare I say, accountability to them. What would they think if I'm off indulging while they suffer hardship? In other words, Uriah responds to David, in light of my commitments to God and my fellow brothers, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and have sex? As surely as you live, Your Honor, I will not do such a thing. And it's hard to imagine the look on David's face as he looked into the eyes of this errant foot soldier, earnest foot soldier, and was struck with the contrast in character. The king, who stayed behind when the army went out, isolated all alone, indulging in sex with a woman that was not his to take, And here's Uriah, who refuses to let his guard down. Although he's legally invited to partake in a gift that's rightfully his to enjoy, and he declines out of what? Self-discipline. Affirming that his first allegiance is to God and the men he is in community with. His band of brothers who are in the field that go to battle with him. The point, in case you've missed it. Integrity begins with not only not letting one's guard down, even when we have rightful excuse to do so, but instead being in accountable community with trusted brothers or sisters who go to war with you. Accountability is essential in the battle for sexual integrity, folks. You know we often expose the myth of Lone Ranger Christianity at Liquid. You can't possibly hope to keep your integrity if you're isolated or without ties to fellow believers. To really drive the contrast home, we are given the details of David's plan B, which is kind of comical, since he couldn't get Uriah to compromise. It says the next day in verse 13, at David's invitation, he ate, and drank with him. And David made Uriah drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Good old stubborn Uriah. Even when his mind is altered by the king's wine, his integrity is so deep-baked that it refuses to crumble. doesn't work. Uriah's devotion to God and his brothers trumps his buzz. And this is the sad, ironic truth that Scripture invites all of us to marvel at. Uriah is a better man toasted than David was sober. The episode would be funny, I mean, if it ended there, but it doesn't. David's determined to cover his tracks. And if wine won't do the trick, then maybe a spear will. So in his desperation, verse 14 tells us, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him. So he'll be struck down and die. Joab's a loyal general, just doing what he was told. Verse 17 records the sad demise of the noblest man in God's army with these simple words. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. The point kind of sneaks up on you. If you don't catch it, you can miss it. Sexual sin. What started out as almost innocent inevitably leads to greater and greater trespass as you attempt to keep it contained and cover it up from others. No one can find out. I don't care what it takes. But this is my secret and I will not be exposed. This is dark, folks. Rock bottom, that's what David hits here. The Christian leader, God's anointed, the one so in tune with God's spirit that he wrote many of the most poignant psalms in scripture, morphs into a cold and calculating murderer. His heart had become so callous, so desensitized, that it doesn't actually even feel a prick when news of Uriah's demise reaches him. In verse 25, David tells a messenger, comfort Joab who's upset about Uriah with these words. Don't let this upset you. 
the sword devours one as well as another. Can't get more callous than that. David's flippant. Dismisses of the damage that his actions are inflicting on others. A hardening of the heart has set in here. Does this Paul describe in Ephesians 4 as we saw earlier this month? Yeah, my actions may affect others, but who cares? That's life. Life is tough. The human heart's capacity for deception, for rationalization, and self-preservation is boundless. And those who are addicted to porn and private fantasy will tell you, eventually you just stop caring about what impact this may have on your spouse, on your family. The only thing you eventually become concerned with is keeping your sin under wraps a secret. And that's the callous attitude David ends with. Who cares? And with this hardness, he goes about making provision to enjoy the wife of the man that he destroyed. Verse 27 says, After the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And you know David must have been thinking, See, all things work out in the end, you know. So there's some casualties along the way. All things work together for good to them who love the Lord, though, right? <laughs> He's got the magnet on his refrigerator. No one cares, right? No, not exactly, David. Someone very important cares. Even though no other human being on earth knows what's happening behind the scenes with, yes, God's anointed, your actions have drawn the attention of a much greater authority than the king of Israel. And chapter 11 closed with these haunting words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we're in the Old Testament, so how many of you have heard that story of David and Bathsheba before? And I appreciate the patience of people that was retread for. Have you written, do you know the story of David and Nathan in chapter 12? Because the reality is, when I first read this story, I remember thinking like, man, this is the Old Testament. <laughs> and... Um, when you end with a verse like, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord, you expect the next chapter to open with, with like, thus came the thunderbolts from the heavens <laughs> and the sulfur and the fire. But what's incredible to me about the story of David is that this, at this moment of spectacular failure, the Lord does actually not rain down punishment and judgment as we'd expect. Rather, he sends David a friend, an old friend in chapter 11, 12 where we pick up, a friend named Nathan, a brother, a prophet, someone called by the Lord to pour out grace and truth to David so that he wouldn't continue in his dark journey to complete destruction, but instead have a path of repentance, cleansing, and restoration open to him. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a remarkable U-turn that occurs in David's life brought about by a brother who truly cared enough to confront him with truth in grace and lead him humbly back to God. Now I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? If you're Nathan, don't even peek, don't peek. How would you do this? <laughs> Now, I want you to think about this, because David, again, is an omnipotent monarch at the height of his political and military powers and influence. Not only that, he's got a hardened heart. His heart's dark. And so Nathan is faced with a challenge that many of us have who know a brother or sister that's caught up in sexual sin or compromise. How do you lovingly confront them with God's truth in the hopes that it will move them to repentance? Use a hellfire and brimstone sermon? <laughs> Grabbed by the ear, dragged by the collar. I mean, maybe you're not struggling with porn or sexual compromise, and you've been like this whole series, like, this isn't for me, right? But <laughs> you know someone who is. A friend, a coworker, maybe someone you go to school with, you share ministry with, a family member, a brother or sister here in church. And they're a great person in every other respect, but there's this dark secret you know 
is privately chipping away at their inner life and is going to bring destruction down the line. There's nothing like more intimidating than the Christian life. I mean, the prospect of confronting them is intimidating. Nathan gives us a model for how to effectively call out the compromise without killing or crushing the recipient. Undoubtedly, Nathan realized it'd take great courage, skill, and tact to awaken David to the true extent of indwelling sin in his life, and he does it here with what I call biblical imagination. Uh, Galatians 6.2 gives us wise counsel. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, hey, brothers, if someone is caught up in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? Gently. Not arrogantly, not condemningly. But watch yourself. Or you also may be tempted. Don't just let it go. I'm not talking gentle, like blow it off. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Nathan was just a man, subject to the same temptations as David. Prophets weren't eunuchs. (laughs) Yet he was called by God to confront his brother and nudge him towards restoration. Not to judge him, but to prick his conscience and resuscitate his numbed out heart and bring it back to life. So how would you do this? Powerful king, deep, dark sin, how do you bring up the topic in conversation? Nathan starts by telling a story, which almost sounds like a fairy tale. 2 Samuel chapter 12, read with me, verses 1 through 6. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It's like a daughter to him. Now listen, David. A traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Just stop right there. Let's just stop right there. You see what Nathan did? This is so brilliant. (laughs) That's why he's a prophet. And he's instructive for us. Instead of just confronting the issue head-on, he actually takes a backdoor approach. He knows that head-on confrontation for someone with a hardened heart will just cause them to put the shell over further or to get defensive. This guy is so desensitized by sin that Nathan has to find some way to kind of, kind of rub the paddles and shock him back to consciousness. So he tells him a story with this cute little lamb. So it creates kind of a safe distance for David. He's like, David, good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Hey, listen, I got a story to tell you. I have a friend. <laughs> I, got a fr- I got this friend. who He's a farmer. He wants to bypass the calloused and deadened part of David's heart and reawaken his sense of justice. And apparently it does so. Verse 5 says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, you catch this. This is almost a full year later. And by this point, David had become so insensitive to the sin in his life that he doesn't doesn't even enter his grid the possibility that maybe, just maybe, he is the villain in Nathan's story. It doesn't even occur to him. Scripture tells us, folks, that we can actually quench the Holy Spirit. 
which happens when we ignore the inner promptings of God's Spirit day after day for an extended period of time. So you can actually have your heart pricked, aware of some sin, and you're like, oh man, I saw this movie, it was really convicting to me, and oh, Tim was talking about liquid on Sunday, and then I was talking with Paul the other day, and he mentions it, and man, I feel like God wants me to do something about it, but you know what, I'm not ready to do it yet. You know what the Holy Spirit does eventually? Stops asking. Quenches it. Maybe God's been prompting you in some area. Have you been ignoring him? The sobering reality is that God's spirit is not a bully, but a gentleman. And will oblige our request that he actually leave us alone. He will go away and stop whispering, stop convicting. To the point that we're truly blind and dead to the nail we're carrying around our head. David was so blind that he actually condemns himself. The man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And this response is revealing of something else. Very sobering. Notice that David immediately prescribes specific restitution. He says, pay for the lamb four times over. Four times over. Where does he get that from? Any idea? Folks, David knew the scriptures. He had committed God's law to memory and was able to speak it without a moment's hesitation. He references Exodus 22.1. The word of the Lord was at David's instant recall. He's like, whoa, terrible situation. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Catch this. You get this? David knew what the Bible said. And without the slightest hesitation, was able to bring a scripture verse, a memory verse to mind, and speak boldly about the judgment of God. When it comes to porn and sexual sin, there's a temptation for many believers that says, well, you know, people fall like that because they don't know the word of God. Or maybe they haven't memorized enough scripture. David is the psalmist. The one who had hid God's word in his heart. And yet here, he demonstrates the frightening reality for every follower of Christ Jesus. That one can know the Bible to great depths and still not yield heart obedience to it. You see this? We can be full of Bible knowledge of scriptural rules, passages, and principles, but it doesn't necessarily translate into hard obedience. David knows the Bible inside and out, and yet by this time, his heart was like seared with an iron by secret sexual sin that he chose to ignore. And so the Bible actually became nothing more than rote memorization. Memory trick. It's actually impressive when talking with other church people, like a prophet. (laughs) It actually counts for nothing. In the eyes of God. This is a sobering portrait, folks. Knowledge of God's word plays a huge role in the battle to live pure and holy lives. Don't mishear me. But obedience is about much more than memory verses casually thrown around. You go back to the story, and you imagine Nathan must have been dumbfounded by David's blindness. It takes a courageous friend to shatter David's denial and awaken him to the deadly sin we've been tolerating for a year. So in verse 7, Nathan confronts David with the truth of his condition. And he makes a series of predictions that his sinful behavior will bring in its wake. Verse 7, follow along with me, would you? Then Nathan said to David, My friend, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house 
and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing right before all Israel. Broad daylight. Folks, there are always, always, long-term consequences to sexual sin. No matter how far off in coming, they will come, make no doubt about it. And Nathan has to deliver some hard news here. He predicts four specific ways, actually, that David's life will be irrevocably altered as a result of his compromise. The first is, is familial damage. In verse 10, he says, David, because of this, the sword will never depart from your house. In other words, Nathan predicts that David's family will from henceforth on have a history of violence. Just as David used the sword to kill Uriah and take what wasn't his, God says David's own household will inherit a legacy of betrayal and violence. And if you take some time to read the rest of 2 Samuel this week, you'll find these predictions coming true in every way imaginable. Word, murder was a constant threat, actually, in David's family. Does anyone know the name of his firstborn son? It begins with an A. That's actually his thirdborn. First one, anyone? Good. Amnon. Amnon, his firstborn, was murdered by Absalom, David's third son. And later on, Absalom was killed by Joab, David's trusted general. Murder was a constant theme, betrayal in his family. Thanks for that legacy, Pop. Household rebellion is the second prediction that Nathan makes in verse 11. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. In other words, for all his brilliance as a king, as a ruler, as a warrior, a man after God's own heart, David was, in the end, a sucky father. The record of mayhem in the lives of his children is well documented. And while a parent can't be necessarily blamed for all the ill that his children breed, David's lust... And his illicit sexual downs opened the door for his sons to follow suit. Do you know the reason Amnon was murdered by Absalom? Anyone? Yeah, because Amnon, David's firstborn, burned with lust and raped his half-sister Tamar. Like father, like son. Ouch. In a devastating way. Eventually, Absalom led a coup against David, driving his father from the royal palace. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And the third one is common to anybody who's had sexual brokenness and pornography. Marital destruction. Before your very eyes, the Lord says, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. And he will lie with you with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Like nothing else, private sexual compromise is a way of destroying the bond between a husband and wife like nothing else. Just as God meant sex, intended it to bond them together powerfully in the covenant of marriage. 
The minute you take that fire out of the fireplace, private lust fragments and corrodes a marriage in the most shameful and public of ways. Turn over a few chapters to 2 Samuel 16, would you? 2 Samuel 16, verse 20. It's amazing how this comes through, but when Absalom is actually staging the coup against his father, he speaks with Ahithophel, which is one of his colleagues who's helping him with the coup, and it says in verse 20, Give us your advice, what should we do? And Ahithophel answered, Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Capture the details of that. Absalom pitched a tent where? On the roof, the original site of his father's ogling of Bathsheba. And lay with his concubines. What would generate such hostility, such animosity in the heart of a child? Then when their parent breaks the covenant of trust. The author's point, what's God trying to point out? All sin, and sexual sin in particular, has a way of boomeranging on us. Doubling back to wound us and bring shame into our lives. To eventually visit disgrace and destruction on our family and children. You see this? Nathan says in verse 11, you did it in secret. The consequences will be in public. What was secret will have public consequences. What was pleasurable for a moment, David, will bring intense pain for a lifetime. The truth of this scriptural principle was brought painfully to light in the life of a friend of mine, actually, who has struggled with an addiction to pornography over five years. I was talking with him as our series here started, and he recounted how he never intended to get caught up in it. He's like, Tim, it's, it's absolutely true. He goes, I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm hoping to become a porn actor today. I just went to work. Someone sent me kind of an off-color email. I forwarded something to them, and someone sent me this picture. And I clicked on the link, and then all of a sudden, whoa, this portal like opened up to me. I forwarded it to them. We just kind of started sharing it back and forth. And, um, you know, sharing pornographic pictures with coworkers, it was kind of funny. It actually became more regular viewing, actually, than during my lunchtime. I actually started leaving lunch early to, to go do this. And then after hours, staying late, and then actually while working, trying to, like, no one else can see me downloading stuff on the company's time. And finally, it became an everyday addiction. And it was, because it was a trap. It was, like, sprung. Before I knew it, he goes, I was hooked. Fortunately for him, it actually all came out at home. A series of events led him to confess this, actually, to his wife. And she was forgiving and sympathetic. She actually supported his desire to get help. She's a wonderful Christian woman. And through personal counseling, his relationship with her and with God was restored. He got off porn cold turkey. A couple of relapses, but with prayer and the support of a Christian recovery group, he came out of it with his marriage and family still intact. Well, he contacts me at the start of the series, and he sends me an email. I printed it out, and it says this. Hey, Tim, no one knows the cost of porn more than me and my wife. This has been a nightmare for her that she never saw coming and never deserved. This ugliness has come back to haunt us again. I spent a lot of time surfing porn at work several years ago before I got hooked up with the Freedom Group and began dealing with the issues in my life that drove me to medicate with porn. All alone, my wife suffered, forgave, cried, and wondered if she would ever be able to trust me again. Five years later, we've seen so much healing. But this last week, I was visited by a corporate security officer. 
See, my company's beginning a merger with another company. And part of that required an audit of the network servers and the recorded activity from years of internet traffic. The message from the security officer was that even though we can see this activity hasn't taken place for a long time, we are obligated to inform your management. So long story short, years later, once again, the consequences of my selfish choices have thrown a gut punch at my wife and my family. I'm waiting to see if I'm going to lose my job over this. My wife is deeply hurt and upset, but somehow is standing with me. This is the very definition of a godly love. I cannot conceive of how, of how she can do this. I feel so, so undeserving of her grace and forgiveness. How could I have taken such an unbelievably good woman for granted and dismissed her from my mind and heart, even for a second, to look at that trash that I've come to hate? The cost is so high. She's paid the mother load of it, and why have I been given such a gift? I ask for your prayers, really not for me, but that I would be able to support my family and for the comforting hand of God for my wife as she deals with the fear of contemplating losing our house and everything else this could cost us. Please, Tim, I don't want to be outed, but share this with the church if you wish. Men need to understand what porn can do. Thanks, your friend, blank. Indulging in private pleasure for a moment can have consequences for a lifetime. Even where there's been forgiveness and healing, the earthly consequences of porn can reverberate in the lives of those closest to us. That's the message of my friend's story, and it's the message that Nathan communicates to David. Family devastation. Household ruin. Marital destruction. But none of them moved David. It's actually only the fourth prediction that Nathan makes which finally pierces David's heart. And the son born to you will die. The child of your illicit affair will not live, David. And understand something, this is not judgment on the child for being conceived out of wedlock or anything like that. Rather, this is a powerful symbol of lust results. Any products or fruits of sexual sin will never last. Bound to spoil and eventually wither on the vine. The affair that, that once made you feel so alive, oh man, i got to rush, will eventually die, bringing tremendous sorrow in its wake. Last week we looked at James 1, 13 through 14, which gives us anatomy of temptation. James writes, When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but... Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And we pause there. But David's tragedy opens the door for verse 15. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice the conception and pregnancy imagery. And it's the predicted death of David's unborn son that finally pierces his hardened adamantine heart finally penetrates a calloused and desensitized spirit awakens him and opens his eyes to see just how far he had drifted from the Lord in his personal life and he responds bluntly in verse 13 I have sinned against the Lord 
Those six words, I have sinned against the Lord, are actually quite beautiful in their simplicity and indicate a turning on the interior of David's heart and soul. You'll notice no rationalizations, no evasive language, no one to blame. He doesn't minimize what he's done or spin his behavior. Well, it depends what you mean by sexual relations. None of it. He doesn't try to justify his choices. It's just a contrition of a heart that's been pricked to how far it has fallen. I have sinned. He calls it for what it is, evil, trespass against God's commands, against the Lord. He's clear about who it hurt here, actually. Although it harmed Bathsheba, Uriah, and his unborn son, this is, first and foremost, David says, rebellion against God, a willful rejection of his law, an offense against the Almighty. We don't have time for this, but it's interesting. When you think of David's sin in light of the Ten Commandments, think of the Ten Commandments, right? The embodiment of God's Old Testament law for his people. David was actually the sinner par excellence, breaking each one of them with his downward spiral. Think about this right now. It was the breaking of the Tenth Commandment, coveting his neighbor's what? Wife, that led David to commit adultery, thus breaking the Seventh Commandment. Then in order to steal his neighbor's property, thereby breaking the Eighth Commandment, he committed murder and broke the Sixth Commandment. He broke the Ninth Commandment then by bearing false witness against his brother. In this way, David broke virtually every one of the Ten Commandments that relate to loving one's neighbor as oneself. That's Numbers 5 through 10. And in doing so, he dishonored God, of course, as well, breaking, in effect, the first four commandments. As anyone caught in porn will tell you, sexual sin not only has a way of boomeranging, but it has a way of snowballing as well. And so this moment, though, when all seems bleak and devastating from a human perspective, fall out of our tragic choices, bring us to our knees, that things actually begin looking up from heaven's perspective. We don't want to be here, but God wants us here because we're finally humbled and honest. The truth of God has finally been brought to bear in our lives and we're willing to confess the truth to God and repent. And that opens, folks, the floodgates of God's heart. During this time, David wrote Psalm 51, which I'd like you to turn to, actually. Would you take a look at this real quickly, please? This psalm of David gives um, valuable insight into his character and the true nature of godly repentance. It really offers hope for all those caught in sexual sin. No matter how miserable guilt makes you feel or what a wreck you've made of your life, you can actually pour your heart out to God and seek forgiveness as David did. Look at the subtitle of the psalm real quickly. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery... With Bathsheba. Let's read the first 12 verses together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak. Justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, for sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let's stop here. What we're really reading here, folks, is David's private prayer journal. This is a recording of his diary, the interior of David's inner soul, and what his response to God was like once his friend Nathan creatively confronted him about his sin. And more than anything, David is offering us a template for repentance here. You'll notice in the first four verses that David, who's now like sobered by way, that he calls out his sin, he gives his actions a name. He uses words like transgressions, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin, evil in your eyes. He calls it out. And he confesses in verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Bathsheba, Uriah, they are my victims. But ultimately, sin doesn't just hurt me and others, it offends God. Because sin in any form is rebellion against his way of living. He says, I got a better idea, I don't want to go by it. In verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, he doesn't like dismiss this as like, like, this is just a mess up. He says, the problem in me is deeply rooted in me. I have a natural predisposition to sin and deception. This is not, I couldn't help it justification. This is, I can't help myself, contrition, brokenness. He comes clean about his darkened state. Everything he'd been hiding or denying to others, to himself, now comes completely out before God. And then this in verse 6. Surely, God, you desire truth in the inner parts. No one can see. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. This, folks, is the essence of confession. No more hiding. Coming clean, it all comes out, is acknowledged to oneself, to God, to others, and repented of. The first step of recovery from sexual sin is an honest admission. I mean, uncensored, detailed accounting of all for which we're responsible. If we don't give voice to this, first to God, but also to others. It also says in, in I believe it's James. Is it James or John? I think it's James. He says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. And you're like, I thought it was confess sins to God. Yes, but also to one to another. You will never access the forgiveness and freedom that God has for you unless you begin a full accounting of it. We don't really have time, but, but turn, if you turn quickly to Psalm 32, I'll actually throw it up here for you. This is another penitential psalm that David wrote. And it speaks to, to the experience of those trapped in lust or private sexual bondage. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Think of the deceit involved in, in this kind of thing, hiding in the shadows, lying to oneself, to God, to your spouse, your friends. Think of the loss of spiritual life and vitality, the wasting, the rotting away that David describes of a life. As a blanket of shame and guilt gets heavier and heavier. This is the reality we have to come clean with before God and others. It's the essence of biblical confession. To confess our sins is just saying, we, I, God, I agree with you. I acknowledge you are right to actually declare what I've done is sinful, and, and I am wrong to desire it or to do it. And most importantly, it's to affirm our intention of abandoning that sin in order to follow him more faithfully. David comes clean fully before God, and that's what enables him to ask to be cleansed in verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. You all know what hyssop is? 
You're like, no, that's why we pay you. What's hyssop? <laughs> hyssop branches were used by the Israelites in Egypt to place the blood of a lamb on where? The doorposts of their homes to keep them safe from death during, does anyone, where? The Passover. And it also demonstrated their faith and secured their release from slavery, from bondage. And the parallels here are pretty obvious. True release from bondage to sexual sin can come through only one source, the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. David asked for the blood of God to cleanse his heart, to wash his sins away, restore to him the purity of God's righteousness. And so it must be with us. Whether it's spectacular public sin or private lustful fantasy, it's only the hyssop or the, the blood of Christ that promises us forgiveness and freedom. You get a pretty, pretty compelling portrait of the interior of David's heart here. And he's honest. He's broken. He's contrite. And folks, those are the three essential qualities which verse 17 highlights as a prerequisite for God's forgiveness. David writes this beautiful verse instructively. The sacrifices of God are this. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. It's an incredible verse that, that God will never, never turn away, never despise or reject any man, any woman who comes to him in a state of humility, of brokenness, which is painful admission that our life is actually a wreck and that we're actually powerless to affect any change. Short of God's miraculous strength that we have. This is an important distinction to make here, folks, because a lot of Christians, myself included, I spent a lifetime doing this, when we become aware of indwelling sin like porn or lust, we simply resolve, like, Lord, I'm really sorry, I feel really bad about this, I will do better next time. And that's like fake repentance. <laughs> it's sort of, it's half repentance. We're sorry for offending God and hurting others, but then instead of turning upward and actually saying we're helpless, we rely on ourselves to improve our moral efforts. And it's always doomed to failure. Glenn and I were talking about this, and he noted that this is the vast difference between fighting and surrendering in battle. It's amazing. It's, it's a paradox here. But if you surrender in the battle to porn, surrender to God, say, I have no strength over this thing, you actually have a chance to win. But if you fight back, say, I'm going to do better. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work on this thing. I'm going to, you're screwed. <laughs> this is an incredibly vital, vital issue. We think wrongly that in the lust war, we got to fight the temptation. And so how many have prayed this prayer? God... I've met a million Christian guys. God, I've asked the Lord to really help me stop lusting. <laughs> Good luck. You've just asked the Lord to take your eyeballs out of your head. And so we make vows and promises of what we won't do again and what natural inclinations actually come to us. Lord, take away any semblance of my natural human <laughs> tendencies and beg his mercy and forgiveness for what we've just done. We, we fail to realize that this is nothing more than another stop, <laughs> the remorse stop on the addiction cycle. Ding. Ding. Fighting in our own strength is far different than surrendering to God. Surrendering isn't as foolish or prideful as to believe, like, I think I can beat this thing. <laughs> because soon that inevitably turns to, you know what, I can't beat this thing, so I might as well face that fact and learn to live with it. Surrender says the opposite. It actually says, I can't win this. And it faces the reality and truth of, of which the fighter is in denial. I am powerless to stop this behavior. My life is out of control. No. It's in control. Lust is now in control of my life. Not me and certainly not God. When you face the hard to accept truth, 
The surrenderer has embraced humility in their brokenness. I'm out of answers. I have no more good ideas. You say that, anything becomes possible. Because that's when God is moved to action. Thank you. Thank you for that admission. Now you've cleared some room for me to work. According to verse 17, at least. Isn't it, isn't it strange, I mean, that when we actually give up, that's the turning point where hope begins to shine its light into the dark and dank sewer, which has become our dwelling place. Our will has now been broken. No longer do we bargain about what we will or won't do to help our recovery. We're willing to do whatever it takes because the alternative is death. Spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, marital. It's death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 makes this distinction in an instructive way. Paul says this. Notice this. This is fascinating. Paul writes, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Do you get it? Paul's saying there are two kinds of repentance. One is genuine. One's an imposter. One's remorse, worldly sorrow that's motivated by guilt and vows to do better next time. It's not the same as godly sorrow, which is motivated by love and honest about its helplessness. One leads to salvation, leaves no regret. The other is imposter. It leads you on the cycle of addiction and death. I know this is hard. It's painful. And everything in us resists being at this point. Of a broken spirit, who wants to admit that? Our failings brought out into light of experiencing contrition about our helpless condition. But while we hate it, we hate it. God loves it. He welcomes it. Because we're putting ourselves in the position to be truly blessed. And actually know his forgiveness to experience his power and healing and to begin the journey to restoration and renewal. 2,000 years later, some carpenter guy said, blessed are those who mourn, the poor in spirit, the broken, for they will see God. God's promise is to forgive us completely. As David says in verse 1, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Sin deadens or shutdowns our heart, but it doesn't do that to God. It actually awakens his to compassion, to mercy, open-armed embrace. That's why David can boldly and confidently make this incredible request in verses 10 through 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's amazing, folks, but David and Bathsheba deserve to actually die for their sin under Old Testament code. But God spares their lives and takes the child instead. In the same way, we deserve to die for our sins, but God spared our lives and took the life of his only son, Jesus, instead. It's an amazing thing, but David clearly realizes this because the psalm, and we don't have time, we'll, we'll kind of close in, in a couple minutes here, but it switches, it switches backs, it switches tone there around verse 15. Because David says, my tongue will now sing of your righteousness and my mouth will declare your praise. It like moves from repentance to worship. It actually starts singing. He begins praising God. And this is more than poetic sentiment. This is the reality that you see in the wrenching conclusion of the story in 2 Samuel 12. Let's actually end our time with this final outcome of David's story in verses 15 through 23. I'm back in 2 Samuel. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights laying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food with them. 
On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. Well, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. And after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Something weird happens here. (laughs) David is in anguish. He's pleading. He's repenting. He's fasting. He's lying on the ground. But in verse 20, something weird happens. David gets up, washes, puts on lotions, changes his clothes, goes goes to church, and he worships, reconnects with God. And then he goes home, gets some food to eat, and refreshes himself. There's this transition in his posture. He starts communing again with God after this period of estrangement. Washes, puts on lotions, eats all signs of life and renewal. And his servants are confused. They're like, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fastened and wept, and now the child is dead. You get up and eat? David's response is this. Now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Folks, this is only one of, I think it's about four or five, Old Testament passages that alludes to eternal life. Life beyond the Sheol, or what Hebrews called the grave, was relatively unmentioned in the Hebrew culture. Yet David makes this incredible affirmation of hope that he will one day see his son, a sign of God's redemption, of his steadfast belief that God will actually bring something good out of all the suffering and grief. If not in this life, then in the next. He won't return to me, but I will be with him someday. The point is, David moves on in hope here because of the hope that he has and doesn't just wallow in the destruction his sin has wrought. The consequences of David's sin were irreversible. And folks, God forgives us, he restores our relationship with him, but he doesn't always eliminate all the earthly consequences of our wrongdoing. But he does offer hope that a new thing or a new life can come from the pain and tragedy we've endured. I think of my friend. My friend actually did lose his job. Five years later, and he and his family are still billing the, you know, bearing the consequences of his tragic choice. But we were talking this past week, and you know what he said? It was amazing. It was just amazing to me. He said, Pim, this is painful, but you know what? In a way, it's good. I'm like, how can that be good? I can say that. Because it's forcing me and my wife to come together again in a way we never would have chosen on our own. We're being forced to confront and work on issues that we likely would never address if everything went swimmingly. And, and this cost of my sin is very painful, but the promise of a better marriage, it's like the commercial, priceless. There is life in the promise of redemption after porn. Even the devastation wrought by sexual sin, 
Make no doubt about it. David carried around the hurt and loss within his heart for all his days here on earth. Every person touched by porn or sexual sin knows this. It forever alters your life, no matter how much you wish you can't go back. But David gives us a model for hope on the other side, for healing. He doesn't stay stuck in regret and remorse. That's worldly sorrow, according to Paul. Rather, he's moved by hope and redemption. That's instructive in the wake of porn and sin. You move forward with hope, even though you bear the pain and the grief inside of you anyway. With anticipation of what God's going to do, how he's going to redeem your failings and restore newness of life now and into eternity for you. This account concludes with a wonderful symbol of the promise of new life in verses 24 and 25. It's kind of neat. It said, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. The name God gave Solomon is significant. Jedidiah, anyone knows what it means? In Hebrew, loved by the Lord. A powerful reminder of God's grace. When we return to God, accept his forgiveness and change our ways, he gives us a fresh start and his love will be with us to eternity. In the end, love wins. The love of God is more powerful than the lust of man. And that is a word of hope for those of you tonight who are struggling or feel helpless. It is possible to be forgiven as David was. It simply takes an admission of your, your sin to God, a desire for your life to change, and actually a confession that you are powerless to do it on your own. A broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. He accepts your broken heart if it's truly broken. And we worship him with expectation and hope. Hope of renewing ourselves in his love and the promise of a new and restored approach to a shattered life. If you're struggling, you need to know this. You are not alone. And you don't have to suffer in secret. God has not abandoned you. And you have Christian brothers and sisters who have not abandoned you. We are here for you. We want to come alongside you in your journey to freedom through restoration and renewal as God intended it. All this October, we've been listing in the bulletin and online at liquidchurch.com a number of resources for you. Because with sin like this, it is, well, it's such a secret, shameful thing. Some people don't even want to come forward for us to pray for you or to get help. And so you want to take a first few tentative steps online. We've, we've listed a number of things for you, made available to you. X3watch.com is free accountability software for your computer. There's a number of, of, of resources, including pureonline.com and purerestoration.com, that actually offer recovery workshops and programs online in your own house, with the philosophy being most likely you got hooked online in isolation and private in your own house in front of your computer, solitary. That's how we're going to help you start getting out. Take a look at it. Here at Millington Baptist Church, we have a freedom group that meets weekly or monthly basis. But if you are interested in that, it's a group for, for people with sexual addiction. You can call our church, the main number, and simply, um, is actually, it's, it's set up wonderfully. You can leave a confidential voicemail 24 hours a day, extension 27. Just call the main church, say, Freedom Group Hotline, please. SA.org, Sexaholics Anonymous. We used to joke, you know, you joke about that. What are you, that's, I guess, for perverts or something. Not anymore. <laughs> if they ever were. Groups throughout New Jersey, including Watchung and Morristown. We've listed all these things on our website, and if maybe tonight is your first night that you take a step towards getting the kind of help that other brothers and sisters can come alongside you 
and help you get to that place of brokenness. You'll need that support. It's scary to do that alone. You can't do it alone. But in community and accountability. Pastor Glenn, who, as you guys know, is a licensed counselor, will be here at the end to pray or talk with you uh, after the service. But for now, I'd actually like us to stand now and to pray together as we close our series. Lord Jesus, we bow our heads to you, not out of shame, Lord, but out of humility. Oh God, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. Although we hate brokenness, Lord, we hate confessing that there are compromises in our lives that we don't want to admit small, that we don't want to admit there are things in our lives that are out of control if we stop and pause to take a look at it. It's there, Lord. But while we, do, are, while we hate that, we hate admitting that, Lord, you love when we admit that. It's called confession. It's called contrition. It's repentance. Lord, would you now evoke in our collective heart a godly sorrow, which is a blessed thing, not a worldly one. One that is, that is full not just of remorse, Lord, but of true repentance and a desire to see your Holy Spirit come and do a new work in our heart. Pray for men here. I pray for women, your sons and daughters, who have you declared free, totally forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be in their hearts in a new way, Lord. Make room for it in their hearts. Cleanse their hearts. Purify them. Sanctify them with your word, with your spirit. And set them on the road to redemption, Father God. That's your business. Restoration, renewal. Thank you, Lord, for... um, sending your son, sacrificing your son so that we, the bearers of sin, didn't have to know those consequences. We now worship you in your fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be blessed in all we do, say and think. Transform us.